This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Creativity rewards. Stability, sanity, and despots. Lightning round! And worst case, World War One. Hey, Robin, your Kickstarter campaign for Feng Shui 2 is in progress, even as we speak. Closing on Friday, October 17th. How's it going? Well, we're recording this in advance, so to find out where we're at, head over to Kickstarter and search for Feng Shui 2, action movie role-playing, Robin Laws, or Atlas Games. Statistically speaking, you're probably about to smash through another stretch goal. We have arranged our stretch goals for easy smashing. Like panes of glass being carried across a Hong Kong street, perhaps. And for role players inexplicably tuning into our show for the first time, remind us what Feng Shui is. It's the classic action movie role-playing game inspired by the giddy, ultraviolent heights of Hong Kong cinema, now making a golden comeback in a revved-up and super-tuned all-new edition. And to mix up various action genres, from gravity-defying martial arts to blood spattered gunplay, it features the key war. Yeah, the player characters fight across key time periods to control key sites of geomantic power, and thus history itself. And as you've been saying, you've gone back to this much-beloved game that changed the way a lot of people played and made it, would you dare say, fasterer and furiouserer? I am confident in that statement. Who do you want to play, Ken? A supreme martial artist, a wily sorcerer, an icy cool killer on a bullet-strewn path to redemption? Because I am the cop of magic, clearly I am the magic cop. Well, look out, because there's a hopping vampire headed this way. So to repeat those Kickstarter search terms, the fun can be joined by typing in Feng Shui, Action Movie Role-Playing, or Robin D. Laws. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the skitter of Skittles, or perhaps M&M's, or in... Or the snack of your choice. We're not dictating snacks. <laughs> We're not dictating snacks. No, but this is a specific kind of snack, because it's a snack you throw to a player to make them know they've done something good. In my old uh, campaign with the University of Chicago undergraduates, I used to toss orange slices to them to um, uh, to reward them for good play, but <laughs> they, some they, games... They were in danger of scurvy, were they? they, they, they no, it was the candy orange slices. They were oh, only in danger of diabetes, oh, okay. just like all gamers. <laughs> they, um, they, they were endangered by your choice of snack. They, well, if their good play gets them into danger. That's how you can tell. <laughs> that's old school. That's, that's that, not That me. is old school. That's, that's, that's Dave Arneson. GM dominance uh, right there. Exactly. Eat my orange slices, peons. <laughs> Eat, Eat my orange slices. Eat your circulation system belongs to me. But some game systems mechanize the orange slice distribution with hero points and bennies and things like that, and that falls under the general rubric of creativity rewards. Robin, is it a good thing or a bad thing to have that mechanized as opposed to in candy form? Well, first I would like to commend our sound engineer for laying in the sound effect of your opening a pop can now. That, that adds verisimilitude to the recording. It's, uh, it's what makes Gaming Hut work so well. Exactly. That's why it's a Gaming Hut. So... Uh, this came to mind during the aforementioned Feng Shui to Kickstarter. I've been answering people's questions on the main Kickstarter page as the campaign continues. And one of the questions that a player who knew the previous iteration of Feng Shui brought up is whether you could offer a bonus 
to players for coming up with cool stunts. And the thing about uh, Feng Shui in particular is that because of the way the die mechanic works, you roll a positive and a negative die Mm -hmm. and add or subtract them together, the average die result is zero, uh, meaning it's a very unforgiving system in terms of its uh, granularity. It's a very coarse system, and one point of bonus or even two point of bonus is extremely determinative. Like fate. Like fate. And one of the things that this uh, new rule system does is it actually makes sure that all the crunchy bits take that into account, which is not always the case in Feng Shui 1. There's some pretty crazy bonuses and stuff in there. And as a result, it's now kind of tuned to the point where there really isn't the room to be throwing people additional bonuses for coolness. And in fact, I sort of was thinking to myself, well, I'm sort of opposed to creativity bonuses uh, because, uh, you know, some people are just more creative in terms of coming up with descriptions, in this case, uh, descriptions of the cool things that you're doing during a fight than others. And so you're and that it's rare, actually, that this incentive actually gets people to be more creative. What gets people more creative, I would argue, is hearing other people do it and wanting just the fun for its own sake of doing it too. And that my experience of seeing people play this game is that people jump in and occasionally, you know, as the fight goes on, you will just go, well, I hit him because you're sort of running out of descriptions and then you'll come up with another cool thing. And there is more guidance in the new version to to let you do that. But that a creativity reward per se just kind of makes you feel bad if you don't earn one. But then I started thinking, hey, wait a minute, all sorts of my other games have other creativity awards. So perhaps my self-perception is incorrect because in Hill Folk, for example, in Drama System, at the end of each session, you all kind of vote on how well each player did in connecting their dramatic poles, the two sides of their emotionally fraught character, to the theme of the evening. And then everybody votes and one or two people get a Benny, a currency that they can use later. In the various iterations of the Skullduggery system, the original Dying Earth and the Revivification Folio version and also Skullduggery, you get rewards, either experience points in the first one or the ability to refresh pools in the newer iterations for successfully weaving lines of pre-supplied witty dialogue into the storyline. Now, that one is a bit more tactical because you're waiting for an opportunity to slip something in or even to drive the narrative in that direction. But those also could be argued to be creativity awards. So I guess what I have to sort out is why do I think the one is a bad idea, but I designed the other one's Uh, into the system. So I thought I would ask uh, you, Ken, for what you feel about the sorts of awards where you are basically giving the player the game mechanical equivalent of the candied orange slice. I I think that um, with some games, as you begin to intuit there, as you are intuiting along, things like Fate's Aspects, Invokes and Compels, become creativity awards because as you're playing a, a long fight in fate, you sort of used up all the really obvious stuff and you're like, um, 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 oh, I know the bright moon is in his eyes. And so I get a, I, I invoke that. I compel him to take a minus two on that arrow shot or whatever. And so a lot of games, uh, especially as you move for, sort of forward into the, or out into the uh, indie space, they're, they're pretty much all mechanical creativity awards that that's, that's the game engine. And so I, I think we want to sort of keep it separate from games in which making stuff up is the game engine specifically. It's what you're expected to do in order to draw on any sort of mechanical 
ability versus games where there is a normal thing and you can play it like uh, Reiner Knizia and uh, Lars von Trier sitting there saying, I hit him, you do not, I hit him, <laughs> and, um, and, and, and have a mechanically satisfying game, even though it might be boring. And those are the games that often get the sort of hero points or bennies or aces or whatever you want to call them that, that get stinkled in. Did you just use stinkle as a verb? Sure. Sure okay. I did. Just checking. Just stinkle. Carry on. Uh, yes. They're stuck in and sprinkled on. Oh, there they're we go. They're stinkled in. Oh, there we go. It's a, it's a portmanteau. Exactly. When I use a word, it means exactly what I mean it to mean. No more and no less. That, I'm just checking to, to add it to my dictionary. As you should. Um, everyone, update your word processors. We'll give you a couple of seconds. But uh, in a game where either the mechanics are so uh, tight and um, and unforgiving, as in feng shui, or in which the story is unforgiving and tight, as in Call of Cthulhu or Trail of Cthulhu, I would recommend keeping those kinds of things down to a minimum. But in games that privilege player character presence, right? The games in which you're playing a larger-than-life person, you're playing a, a paladin or you're playing a, a pulp adventurer or you're playing a, a badass super spy, you want to increase the amount of currency. You want to kind of inflate the game currency a little so that you can have a higher, I, I guess you'd call it a velocity of money in economics, but in this case, it'd be the velocity of action. So that there's always a sense that you're going to get another couple of bennies coming in. You can spend them to swing on the chandelier today, or you can spend them to stab two orcs with one blow, and then you can know pretty surely that more stuff is coming eventually. That's uh, in the in the um, uh, creativity reward mechanics that you've invented, things like the uh, techno thriller monologue uh, in as a terrorist that eventually spawned a whole section of the Knights Black Agents rules in terms of the opportunistic refresh ability. As long as you can provide something that sounds like it's in an action movie, right? And I guess the possibly the dividing line is something, or I guess what we're looking at is a question of what incentives actually incentivize people to have more fun and which ones do they find oppressive or too competitive and i guess the ones that sort of seem remedial are kind of a problem like giving like the, the feng shui example it assumes that sort of the person who is really good already at get at describing an action will get a bonus and the per people who aren't yet as good at it will sort of feel the need to compete with them and do better but the problem is that you're sort of feeling that you haven't done so well whereas at the end of uh, drama system that if you're playing a long uh, campaign, which is the only a campaign in which bennies matter, that over time, that just the way that the story flows goes, that it, that it, anyone who is good enough at drama system to want to play drama system <laughs> is going to have their great nights where everything comes together for their character and the relationship to the theme, and other nights where other people do that instead, and so that over time that plays out in a way where you're not feeling that one person is constantly being rewarded. And also the mechanism there is less direct than the orange slice from the GM, right? Because mm -hmm. it's just, it's a vote distributed between the players, uh, which the GM breaks the tie, so that you're playing to the entire room. You're not just uh, pleasing one person. Mm -hmm. And while you're playing uh, throughout the session, not at the end, you're not constantly keeping in mind 
that you're trying to outdo everybody else. It's just at the end that you're reminded, hey, this is a game where you're supposed to think about the theme and its relationship to dramatic poles. So that the improvement in your play that it incentivizes, if any, will take place in the next session or the session after that. So that it's not as the direct moment as, hey, Johnny got an orange slice and I didn't. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that distribution is is generally good. You you don't want to try and make the awards only available to very, one narrow class of player. That's why in the better systems, it's for anything that creates a great moment at the table as opposed to someone who thinks of a new creative way to stab a guy. So it can be, you know, someone who's maybe not a, a good creative on their feet thinker, but is a good dialogue role player. If they really, you know, throw themselves into the into the conference with the elf queen, then yeah, that's going to be worth a Benny or a, or, a, or a story point or whatever you want to call it, because they really sort of threw themselves in. And I think with a lot of these mechanics, it becomes incumbent on the GM to keep it like it does, you know, always, but this is another reason to, to keep an eye on how your players play and what are their strengths and reward them for playing well to their strengths, not you know, everyone gets a prize because uh, this is, you know, a, a Montessori preschool. But you're you're going to want to set up opportunities to challenge players in their areas of strength and competency. And then if they succeed, you know, more better than they normally do, then that's when they get the story point of the Benny. Right. And in some cases, you actually do want to encourage a PvP sense. And that's certainly true of Skullduggery, where the mm-hmm. character's sort of oscillate between working together toward a goal in the scenario, but also trying to screw each other over within that. So that it's more appropriate then that, you know, some people get the reward for being cleverer at sneaking in their lines of dialogue than others. And that my experience of that in play is that it's sort of a, oh, ho, ho, if you do really well, and everybody sort of admires your panache, even as you score something well. And that uh, because it's already a emotionally competitive procedural environment, I think people accept that more. Mm -hmm. And that also exists to incentivize something else indirectly in that the ultimate aim of that rule is to get you to speak, uh, particularly in the Vancean games and the guy in reach, which is a gumshoe game with uh, skullduggery stuff bolted onto it is the same way. It's encouraging you to, to speak those lines of dialogue. And then that makes you then, talk a bit more in that fancy lingo but there's also but again there's no direct moment where it's the gm is aesthetically approving or disapproving of your role-playing art there is a more detailed criteria it that has sort of a tactical element to it so it's not just you know did you come up with a really great joke but were you really sneaky and clever in taking this pre-arranged joke and sticking it in which is a again a, a different dynamic that i think feels uh, less judgmental, and to the extent that it does feel judgmental, it's made acceptable by the competitive nature of things. Um, we've uh, talked probably for about a segment's worth, so uh, maybe we don't want to move on to the whole general issue of, of to how much a game designer can succeed in incentivizing things. Are there particular incentives that you like to uh, throw at your players or that conversely that come with a rule system that you don't bother with? In general, if uh, if, a, if a rule system has bennies in it, it's because, I mean, if it's a modern-day rule system, I mean, there's always possibilities that a game's badly designed, but I try not to run games that are badly designed. Well, yeah, we needn't talk about those. But something like Savage Worlds, where the benny economy is really important to keeping the game flowing, um, I, I pay attention to that, and I use those rules because I don't have time to, you know, 
try and outthink Shane Hensley and redesign Savage Worlds. The whole point of Savage Worlds is that I can run it out of the out of the pamphlet and have a great time. So I generally, if if a story reward or a, a or a Benny point looks like it's either associated with some activity that I don't wish to make core in the game, I may move the story point to the activity that I do think is is core. Or if a, a story point is seems to just sort of hang on there. I, I think Unknown Armies has a deal at the end of the adventure where everyone votes to see who did the most Unknown Armies-y thing, which seems really sort of counter to the whole ethos of Unknown Armies, which is that you're in this alone and being, you know, buried underneath the, the filth of, of your own occult effluent. So I sort of leave that out when I run Unknown Armies. I, I tinker with um, uh, experience rewards, but everyone just basically gets the same the same amount. And I think Greg intended there to be more competition in, in Unknown Army's experience. But again, my my whole GMing style has been completely deformed by running Call of Cthulhu for eight straight years. So I never believe that players are uh, are going to get an advantage on me. So I just, you know, whatever they want is generally fine with me. And if I have to uh, fix it, I'll fix it on the story end where it's more fun anyway. Right. And it should also be noted that a game can have bennies that are detached from the notion of them being an award. So to mm-hmm. go back to Feng Shui, which of course is on my mind at the moment, it has a fortune die mechanic, but that's a resource that you get as one of your game statistics mm-hmm. uh, that you can spend X amount, and you're not awarded additional fortune dice for doing creative things. There's also In the new version, there's all kinds of crunchy bits that allow you to refresh your uh, fortune pool or your subset of that, whether it's foo or magic or whatever, but it's never a thing that the GM gives you because you are being entertaining. Uh, being entertaining just per se is the default assumption of what I figure, whatever role playing game I'm designing, that mm-hmm. everybody is coming to the table to have fun and that you're not trying to design a rule set to force people to draw on talents that they <laughs> don't bring with them because that's uh, a, a sucky activity. Yeah, I think that you're slowly talking your way out of love with creativity rewards again and into the notion that if these sorts of, uh, of rules mechanics are going to exist, they have to exist within the ecosystem of the game and they have to be as separate from GM fiat as possible. I think what you're looking at is you want distributed responsibility uh, for rewards, and the rewards should match uh, the fiction as opposed to simply be pumped in there like Howard Shore soundtrack to make sure that the action keeps going. I knew if I asked you what I was thinking, you would tell me. That's what I do. It's what I'm here for, Robin. Well, now that we've done that, it's time to uh, think our way into another hut. Creating your own world for a new RPG campaign is a lot of fun. But Ken, what if our listeners hate time and effort? Then we commend them to World Spinner, a new tool that makes setting creation easy. Might this wondrous tool simplify map design? It not only might, but does. Generate a world in minutes, then spend as much or as little time as you like adding stuff and making it your own. It makes great maps, anything from a world map to a single kingdom. Its technology creates continents, mountains, climate, forests, and the ever-popular... 
etc. Then add Sizzle with themes and the adventures that flow from them. They're doing a Kickstarter to fund a bunch of themes from great authors and designers such as... Mer Lafferty. Elizabeth Bear. And Wolfgang Barr. In the business, that's known as the Mer Bear Bar Trifecta. And in the That's Not All department, John Wick. Philip Athens. And Lisa Smedman. To check it out, go to kickstarter.com and search for World Spinner. One word, no space between world and spinner. The recorded clickety-clack of teletype machines and the bleeping and blooping of dials on the war room consoles tell us that we've once more stepped into the serious furrowbrow confines of the politics hut. And uh, this week I thought we would consider something uh, serious indeed, but perhaps in what might initially seem like a frivolous way, and that is to look at uh, one of Ken's uh, signal game mechanics as a framework through which to better understand real-world events, and particularly real-world horrible events committed by uh, psychopathic actors. And that stems from uh, at the beginning of the year when ISIL first uh, came seemingly out of nowhere to burst out of Syria and take a big, albeit vulnerable and kind of a useless chunk of Iraq. Vox.com wrote one of its explainers explaining that these guys aren't crazy, they're ruthlessly efficient. And it strikes me that these things are not actually the opposite ends of a continuum. They're axes, uh, as it were. And uh, Ken, coincidentally enough, you have a rules mechanic that goes on exactly that insight. So perhaps you could uh, refresh our memory on what that is. In Trail of Cthulhu, I virtually the only rules uh, innovation that I introduced, besides uh, stuff that Sandy Peterson had introduced or you had introduced in Gumshoe, was the notion that sanity, the, you know, beautiful, perfect mental hit points, doesn't really represent what happens in Lovecraft's fiction, because you have plenty of characters who are, on the one hand, very much aware of the mythos, and a single shove will send them over the edge of the pit, but are capable of wandering around the world and, and you know, collecting a paycheck and looking normal, people like Dr. Armitage, or in theory, Joseph Kerwin, when he comes back as an undead necromancer, he's obviously zero sand in the classic uh, Cthulhu fashion, but to all intents and purposes, he can impersonate Charles Dexter Ward, so his stability, which is what I named the other part of that equation, based again on the more normal statistic from Fear Itself and from Esoterrorists, is again, pretty normal, because he can uh, simulate normality, so his stability must be a good number, whereas his San, as we all know, is zero, because he's full of Yogg-Sothoth. So, I guess the notion is that since sanity and stability are different in Trail of Cthulhu, they must also be different in the real world. Right, and that being organized and efficient uh, is, in fact, a characteristic of psychopaths. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, we might want to examine... Of the question of are psychopaths actually insane? Are they truly mentally ill, or are they in fact just beyond the realm of uh, normal human behavior? Is lacking empathy and being highly manipulative are these things actually mental diseases, or just simply something that we wish to uh, segregate those people who have? Of those traits and then use them to commit crimes because, of course, there are sort of pro-social psychopaths who may be 
uh, hell to be around, but never commit any crimes. <laughs> and uh, some of them work their way to high positions of influence. And even in order to increase their status and uh, their ability to rise in the world may actually wind up doing some good. But we're talking about the sorts of people like the terrorist uh, captors with ISIL who are uh, beheading journalists and uh, crowing about it and uh, celebrating their ability to project power onto the world uh, through uh, murder. And of course, Ken, uh, as a student of history, you know uh, these people can be uh, very effective and some of them have amassed uh, enormous power over the course of history. Yeah, um, I think that the first thing, I mean, when you start from Vox.com, you are starting with uh, <laughs> with two feet and one arm tied behind your back. Uh, the, the, the Cliff's Notes of, of modern politics, if Cliff's Notes were never proofread or checked. Um, but what, what we, when you start from the assumption that there is a normal that we represent, uh, and we meaning Canadians and Americans and, and Danes and, and sort of the Western uh, cultural consensus, that is not to sound like, you know, a Marxist or, or um, uh, a deconstructionist, but that is a very historically contingent statement. That obviously it's not that far back in our own history where normal behavior in wartime, or at least against certain foes, was the sort of thing that we would say, well, that's obviously psychopathic behavior. But I think that you, because the normality shifts, uh, you know, and again, the United States Cavalry was committing fairly efficient atrocities now and again against uh, the Indians, and a lot of sort of private mercenary groups like Chivington's uh, horse were committing even worse ones, and they would, I guess, sort of be the um, uh, the rogue element of 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 the, of the of the campaign. But if you looked at the war in Bosnia, where the war was conducted by fairly normal medieval standards of war. I mean, you took a city, you could sack it and rape everyone in it. That's just how the rules worked. And the Russians did that to Berlin in 1945. It was the same sort of medieval standards. And if you'd told John Marshall or Captain Hawkwood that he was a psychopath, he would have looked at you oddly, or the term would have meant nothing, because literally everyone who was in a position to ride a horse, wear armor, and hold a sword was trained up to that as the standard sort of behavior. So the term psychopathy, as you hint, may not have any sort of medical connotation. It just con connotes someone who has put themselves outside what we consider the pale. So we have to keep in mind that what we consider the pale is a very new, very tenuous, very artificial, very recent sort of pale. And there's lots of other pales out there. And ISIL, uh, for example, is uh, perfectly happy to go back to the good old medieval code of war and in which sort of these um, uh, the, these major atrocities are ways to signal to your foe that you don't intend to surrender, you don't intend to commit uh, to accept their surrender, and you are, you know, literally trying to break their morale, their will to continue to fight by this sort of, um, of signaling. And you can look at Vlad the Impaler when he put, you know, 20,000 guys up on pikes and the Turks are marching deeper and deeper into Wallachia, and they keep seeing guys up on pikes, and eventually the Sultan says, you know what, fighting this guy is going to be really, really problematic. And you, you get the same sort of behavior with the Japanese on their, on their islands in 1945, the refusal to surrender and the constant booby-trapping of the tunnels and all this. It was not a tactical decision. It's not like they thought, well, we'll really hold Tarawa if we keep this up. It's a signal that says you don't want to invade the home islands because it's going to get a million times worse. Right, and it's a signal to your own troops who are less 
motivated at murder than you are, that you should be, they should be more afraid of you than they are of the enemy. And uh, so the people who are drawn to the conflict because they are seeking a context to commit murders and atrocities, which I think describes a subset of the people uh, driven to ISIL, that's a recruiting tool. Now, I think these things all burn themselves out quickly because they're not sustainable. And the, uh, the age of all the people involved, there's just a sense also to which uh, young men, uh, particularly young men who are, uh, grow up in an environment without a guidance or an environment that gives you PTSD, um, <laughs> as you are if you live anywhere in the world that is under danger of drone strikes whenever the uh, sky is blue. Or in danger of uh, Assad coming in and burning down your city around you. Uh, yes, exactly. It, there's all sorts of ways to get PS PTSD in that part of the world. Yes. Um, there's no shortage of that. And so, you know, there's a, a draw between those things to which, you know, the insanity as mental illness as opposed to insanity as mental aberration framework uh, doesn't do us very much good. We know that uh, soldiers, typically, who are being trained to engage in warfare, 90% uh, of them, uh, you have to work on them really hard to get them to shoot people. And even then, only you know, a certain percent will actually fire guns with intent to kill. But there's 10% of people who take to it like ducks to water, and they're the mm -hmm. ones who prosper in, in wartime and to which, uh, in peacetime, the word psychopath uh, might be applied. Um, but, again... It's not like these things are uh, because they because we want to express our horror of them by labeling them as insane doesn't mean that they don't make perfect, albeit horrible sense within their own uh, approach to things. And so the, the question I guess becomes is uh, what is the best way to deal with one of these um, movements that is drawing on all of the sort of darkest uh, impulses, particularly in the testosterone-driven psyche, uh, whether the thing to do is just to step back and wait for it to uh, burn itself out with the in inevitable crazy loss of life that that will entail, or whether attempting to confront it is just going to perpetuate that cycle of PTSD that uh, helped to fuel the situation in the first place. Well, I mean, the sort of classic, you know, two solutions are your um, we have to change the conditions on the ground. We have to turn uh, their 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 homes into places where young men can get jobs without having to go, you know, off on the jihad, where women are respected, so that you don't have this sense that you're fighting for the property uh, rights in other people's women. Um, as someone pointed out, one of the great things that Ataturk did for Turkey that people don't give him enough credit for was he legalized drinking wine, so social. Uh, tension could be defused more easily and more harmlessly if everyone just sits around and gets a little uh, sloshed now and again. Um, I think that uh, I'm not going to necessarily criticize uh, Islam or Mormonism's uh, prohibition of alcohol, except to say it ain't for me. And I think that um, uh, the difference between post-Ataturk Turkey and pre-Ataturk Turkey sort of speaks for itself. Although, again, I think you can maybe over-explain it with wine. But I think that the, the sort of the general social worker approach to it... Or just re release valves in general, right? That the, the, the more... Uh, and that's why powerful figures who wish to make their societies autocratic and uh, crush the spirits of their uh, young men in order to turn them into more effective killing machines, see also Sparta, they're totalist and they try to clamp down on all means of release, whether it be sexual or things that drive people to their families or want them to, uh, you know, have a stake in normal life. And so if you are going to 
create a maniacal movement of other lesser psychopaths, you have every incentive to make sure that they have no release valve but to kill for you. But of course, the problem with that so- sort of social worker theory is that up until fairly recently, Lebanon, for example, was a freaking garden spot. It was a vacation spot. People would, in Europe would go to Lebanon on vacation because it was so nice and so placid and so peaceful and so pleasant. Right. And, and it had a well civil run. society. And, and, and it had, a, it had a, a, a very, uh, you know, a relatively healthy mixed civil society. It had lots and lots of job availabilities. I mean, there, was, uh, there were so many Lebanese uh, jobs in merchanting that they wound up in Mexico and Brazil and all kinds of other places because they were just so good at it. And so I, I think that obviously there is some other uh, outside factor, and this outside factor might be uh, considered sort of in g- vague general terms of the rise of ideology, or it might be considered, you know, some bad actor. Uh, right. like uh, the well, Bath Party And it's also tribalism, right? Because uh, Lebanon, like uh, Yugoslavia, you know, had this veneer of civil society and cooperation between groups and people not paying very much attention to what group someone belonged to. And then all of a sudden the tribalism switch uh, got hit and that, you know, and that unleashes, you know, the Pandora's box of all of, uh, you know, the worst things within uh, the human instinct set. Well, I mean, we can say veneer all we want, but I mean, Lebanon managed to do it without without anything like the sort of uh, totalitarian controls that Tito had in Yugoslavia. Um, they they just had organized themselves into a civil society. And I don't know necessarily what it is that is the magical, you know, uh, button that, 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 that breaks Lebanon. But if you can... If you could turn anywhere in the Middle East, including Lebanon, into Lebanon in 1962, no one would say that's a veneer of success. They would say, oh, my God, the, the new millennium has come. Uh, well, I, I, I guess <laughs> I'm arguing that everywhere that we have that, that everywhere civil society is uh, just a couple of turns of the screw away from uh, horror and madness. Right. Yeah. I mean, in theory, obviously, you could have um, uh, Michigan and Ontario fighting a war. Which makes this the cheerful episode. Yes, it's the upscale. It's about to get even less cheerful. But yeah. before that, let's have a slightly more lighthearted uh, episode in between the historical horrors. <laughs> time once again to Ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin, and this Ask Ken and Robin is a lightning Lightning round. So we have lots of lightning round questions uh, left over from our anniversary episode, and periodically we will be dipping into them. So Ken, hit us with the first one. Bill Adcock asks, how much influence do you think Ruritanian romances, i.e. the Prisoner of Zenda, etc., had on games like D&D? I would say not that much, really. In D&D, I guess sort of the Cavalier character who started out in Dragon Magazine and uh, then migrated into one of the core books and, like the Barbarian that appeared at the same time, uh, was conveniently overpowered. <laughs> so people <laughs> really like that those two characters. He's very clearly meant to be a swashbuckly uh, sort of character in the Ruritarian uh, romance is a subset of the swashbuckler, of course. But in general, you have to kind of look to 
games that are designed to be swashbuckly and which by nature kind of have to be more emulative in order to successfully capture the uh, free flow of a swashbuckling combat. So I, I would say not a whole lot. Yeah, the other thing that Ruritanian romance specifically needs is any, a Europe to fit into. Uh, the reason it's Ur Ruritania is because this is a little pocket world where the conventions of romance... Uh, broadly speaking, hold true, as opposed to stupid old London and Paris and places that we know don't have uh, evil twins and um, uh, cackling hussars and whatnot. And so the Ruritanian half of the romance is, if anything, even less influential in D&D, because, of course, all of D&D takes place in an imaginary fantasy realm, and so there's no reason to assume that one part of that fantasy realm plays by the sort of um, uh, specifically Ruritanian rules that Ruritania does, or Graustark, or wherever, whereas the a game that is uh, like Castle Falkenstein tries to sort of Ruritanianize all of Europe, and you could, in theory, have a game maybe like Hollow Earth Expedition, where there's some part of the world that is unreal, and that that's where you have your Ruritanian romance. But I don't think D&D draws an awful lot from Anthony Hope, and it, of course, certainly doesn't show up in Appendix N. Lightning Round! Chris O'Neill asks a Lightning Round Ken's Time Machine question. You only have a five-minute window into the past. How many wars can you start? Well, depending on... The, the trick with starting a bunch of wars in the past is that they tend to sort of... If you've only doing it in five minutes, they tend to glom up into the same war. So, for example, if I spend my five minutes tossing a bomb into an Archduke's car, I've started you know, a whole bunch of wars, but they all turn out to be World War One. So in some sense, I've only started one war. I think that probably, uh, <laughs> to keep with our positive, happy, upbeat uh, theme, <laughs> that probably the easiest way to start a war in five minutes is to light off a nuclear weapon anywhere in the Middle East. And sure enough, um, given the... The geopolitical upheaval caused by, say, invading Iraq, which has uh, not had knock-on effects that are still going on, or even the uh, geopolitical upheaval caused by invading Libya, which again has started wars, I think, in four or five countries now, you could drop a bomb on, say, uh, you know, Damascus or Jerusalem or wherever, and you'd start a whole bunch of wars. And whether or not they ever all organize themselves into the Great Middle East War in the same way that all those wars in Central Africa sort of become the Great African Lakes War. Uh, I, I I don't know. That's that's something for the for the historians and the and the and the librarians to decide. Right. My my question is who is Chris O'Neill and why why is he gathering this information? Yeah, I think I, I, I think, um, uh, if Chris O'Neill gets access to nukes, um, NSA, you need to stop him hard, and don't be fooled by his happy expression. That's that's what psychopaths look like. We learned that from the politics. Hut. Lightning round. John Powell asks, what if Lovecraft and Houdini had hooked up? and become the greatest occult investigators of all time. Well, they would it would kind of be like a, a Nero Wolf thing, right? Where uh, Howard would be uh, hanging out at home doing his research, and uh, Houdini would be going out to find Mego to escape from. And actually, Lovecraft's friend and collaborator C.M. Eddy almost certainly worked for Houdini as a sort of advance man. Uh, he would go into the area where Houdini was going to go, and he'd find out about all the spiritualists and psychics and uh, phony table tappers, and he would get, he would sort of do the thing that their assistants did to their goals and get information for Houdini to use uh, when he turned the tables on them. So Lovecraft's friend Eddie is already hooked up with Houdini, so all you need is just to add Lovecraft and obviously add the actual occult. Lovecraft was going to write a book for Houdini called The Cancer of Superstition about witchcraft and things like that, and he never got around to doing it. So maybe while he's investigating his witchcraft book, he and Houdini and C.M. Eddy 
<laughs> who's sort of the lepidus in this triumvirate, get to uh, go off and fight witches. So that's pretty cool. Right. And of course, uh, Lovecraft uh, did ghostwrite an occult adventure for uh, Houdini written in supposedly in Houdini's voice. So uh, there was some level of contact there. And obviously a cover for something that is yet to be revealed. Also, the other guy who ghostwrote for Houdini may have been Walter Gibson, the author of The Shadow. So now we have Lamont Cranston in the mix. Uh, so pay attention, people. It's all around you already. Lightning Round! John Tabor asks, can you recommend a good history podcast? Uh, no, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, I have a relatively difficult time doing anything else when I'm listening to people talk. Uh, so I, I can't multitask. I don't drive uh, on a commute anywhere. My commute is 45 seconds. So I can't. Um, I know other people like the Drunk History Podcast guy. So maybe that's one. I don't know. Robin, do you have a history podcast that you like? If current history counts, I recommend the Power Vertical, uh, which is a, a weekly roundup of all things Russian, which is yet another thing you want to keep a track of in the world. And among its rotating stable of hosts is Mark Galliotti, who is uh, in his secret identity, also a role-playing game designer. And, uh, for example, the uh, Mythic Russia version of HeroQuest is his. So uh, if you, and it's a quite a different uh, version of what's going on in Russia that you get from other sources, from people who are sort of more experts and on the ground, whereas a lot of what Putin is doing currently is being held as, you know, the swift and implacable uh, moves of a clever strongman. The uh, obvious consensus, as you listen from week to week on this show, is that uh, it is he's committing the greatest series of blunders in uh, in history, and it's all going to come cracking like an egg uh, <laughs> any week now. Well, um, uh, from uh, that podcast to God's ears. Lightning Round! Hyperlexic asks, Robin, what are some aspects of Glorantha that you don't think HeroQuest handles well? Any thoughts on a different approach for those? I don't like your tone, Hyperlexic. Well, um, if you associate uh, Glorantha with the RuneQuest style of you fight a baboon in the desert over his left leg grieve. If you think of that as Glorantha, HeroQuest doesn't much bother with that, although you could easily do it. It's just not what people tend to do with it. If you want a Glorantha where there's sort of clear character classes, I would uh, keep an eye on the 13th Age in Glorantha project now underway uh, with uh, the Fire Opal team and the guys from Moon Design. But in terms of the stuff in Greg's stories, uh, what Greg tells about uh, Glorantha, the whole point of HeroQuest is to do something that is uh, story-driven enough and abstract enough that you can replicate any of those stories. That was the original design goal, and uh, I uh, kind of think I succeeded in that. <laughs> So take that, Hyperlexic. Lightning Round! Ross Ireland asks, why is the D12 so unloved? I love I the D12. don't know that people don't love the D12. I think, in fact, they love to pretend it's unloved so that they can get credit for loving it. I, I guess the sort of, you know, on-the-ground answer is that by the time you get out to 1 to 12, you're getting an awfully swingy curve. They're harder to find than D6s. They can't turn into percentiles, so unlike D10s, they can't have a double use like the D10s in, in Vampire. But I think people love D12s just fine. Yeah, I think they're uh, very aesthetically pleasing. But as you point out, they don't necessarily generate an intuitive curve, right? D12s exist because you can make that shape, not because there are a lot of game design problems that are awaiting solution of a D12. It puts me in mind actually being in a Gamma years ago, and uh, Luzaki got up as part of his keynote address and as an aside, 
noted that he had just designed a D36. So would any game designers in attendance like to uh, come up with a use for it? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that um, I, for example, uh, made use of the D12 in uh, the random encounter tables in Day After Ragnarok because 12 things is a good thing to think of when you're thinking of adventures in a setting. As uh, Sherwood Schwartz famously said, if you can't think of 13 stories, don't make a TV show about it. <laughs> and if only Sherwood Schwartz were with us today, ideally with some sort of bat or machete. I would argue that the least love die is the D4, just based on the amount of times you step on one. Yeah, right. I mean, they're certainly the least loved in the in the physical. Um, I grant right. you that. They, they don't. They they roll like a bunch of punks. They're they're not. Uh, uh, fun to handle. They, yeah. uh, you know, steal your pyramid power that you want to be using for other things. So I would say, really, and reading them is annoying. Yeah, the, the D12 is only pretending to be unloved in order to make the D4 feel better. Yeah, the D12 is like um uh, the really cute girl who's wearing glasses in the first half of the movie. That's all that is. Lightning round. Um, and we have uh, time for one more uh, lightning round question, and then we'll save our others again for another lightning round later. And that is Steve Segetti asks, "What writing rituals do you always need to have? Is there something that you do differently for new inspiration, Robin?" The closest I come, or have come in the past, to new inspiration is I used to, uh, back when I was very focused on what the folders were on my desktop on Windows, <laughs> I would find a new icon to replace the folder icon with. Uh, but since I started using uh, Launchy, which is a little app that lets you type in a couple of letters from whatever file it is that you want and then brings up the file directly, I don't interact as much with the way the folders look on my desktop. So that is sort of uh, gone by the wayside. But other than that, the uh, rituals are just the routine of my day, which is all about, you know, getting up, puttering for a bit on the internet, eating breakfast, having coffee, maybe working out, taking a shower, and then hoping my brain works and, and perhaps dealing with a few and, and hopefully a very few little administrative tasks and um, hoping my brain c kicks in around uh, noon or 1 p.m. for a nice uh, flow state in the afternoon. Yeah, I mean, I don't I, I think that my writing rituals are, you know, listen to music and drink something stimulating. You know, that's pretty much it. I mean, there's sort of the afterburner writing ritual where you realize that there are a lot more words that need to be written tonight. And that ritual of going downstairs and making a little pot of espresso in my Bialetti. But that's not so much a ritual. That's first aid. Yes, that's uh, just medicine. I'm not, I'm I not really medicine to write. <laughs> I'm not. Daddy needs his writing medicine. Um, I'm not I'm not really sure that I have a writing ritual. I mean, I write in the same place at, on the same computer wearing the same lack of pants, but that's not so much a ritual as just my work environment. Yeah, so we've discussed this before. The main ritual is sit your damn butt in the chair. Yeah, no, I mean, I would, I would love to have a ritual. Um, I, I guess Virgil has a writing ritual, which is that if he senses that I'm getting a lot of writing done, he comes up and climbs in my lap, but that, that's an anti-writing <laughs> ritual. He considers that his petting ritual. Yes. See annoying writing happening. Yes. Interrupt. Right. So that's our uh, lightning round for this week, and we will uh, come back to lightning round at some point later. But now let's go uh, back into uh, the gallows and the, the darkness and the trenches. And indeed, uh, we're headed to some trenches with Ken's time machine, the whirring, clacking device that Ken uses to travel back into time, uh, usually on behest of Time Incorporated in order to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes even mutilate history. And of course, in his travels through the timeline, he has seen various 
parallel dimensions and alternate uh, timelines, uh, some of them reverted, some of them projected, and it is uh, these that the uh, fresh-faced layout artist and illustrator Chris Huth uh, decides to use as inspiration as he asks, in all the timelines you've visited, what's the worst-case version of World War One? And since my, my guess would be our own actual version is pretty frickin' horrible, uh, is there a worse one? Oh, yes, there is. There is the very real possibility that the Second Battle of the Marne succeeds, in which the Germans break through the French and British defenses and take a bunch of territory and put the front line a little bit closer back to where it was in 1914. The, the French probably have another giant mutiny like they did at Verdun. The British are forced to increase the amount of uh, Canadian and colonial forces that they bring in because their manpower is being... Uh, scraped to the bottom of the barrel. Lloyd George said that he would put Arthur Curry in command of uh, British forces if the war extended into 1919. Now, he said that well after the war, so he might have just been trying to make nice and explain why he didn't put him in command the instant Arthur Curry set foot on the battlefield instead of letting Haig slaughter a million people. So I guess in the worst version, he was lying and he leaves Haig in charge. And of course, uh, the Americans are fed into the battle piecemeal. They're not uh, left under the command of Pershing the way that uh, Wilson insisted. Maybe Wilson has his stroke just a little bit before um, making that, uh, that, that sort of ultimatum to the European powers. So Pershing's American army is broken up. There's no, uh, strong counterpunch in the, in the forest. And you have the war continue into 1919. The German rear area, of course, is still, it, it's still, uh, parlous and horrific in the way that it is, but more, uh, supplies are beginning to be extracted by slave labor from the Ukraine and from the occupied, uh, Russian, uh, east. So, Maybe you, you put off the, the industrial uh, riots, or the, conversely, you give the Junkers enough power that they can put down the industrial riots. So, with, and, and what are the industrial riots? The industrial riots, basically, there is an argument, and it's not an unsound one, that labor unions ended World War I, that it was a, a labor action at Kiel that uh, spread to all of the workers in Kiel, then to the workers in Hamburg, and then down through the whole industrial stretch of Germany, that they refused to just be continuously working you know, for for 1914 pay in a horribly inflated economy and to keep this stupid homicidal war going. And uh, if you simply posit that because the Junkers are more powerful or because the workers are slightly uh, uh, more contented, these actions don't happen, you don't have the, the wave of strikes that, that really breaks the back of the German industrial machine. That, of course, is what Hitler's talking about when he talks about the stab in the back, is that he's talking about the, the communists in the labor movement, breaking uh, Germany's will to fight. Now, of course, that's ahistorical, because the communists in the labor movement had been pretty much uh, sidelined. Right, but the, if if you're uh, on uh, on Hitler's side of the aisle, anything done by a labor movement that you don't like is done by communists. Is done by communists. And, you know, certainly once it started, the communists, you know, ran out in front and said, look at us leading this labor action. But uh, anyway, but the point is that if you have a more efficient slave state in the East, bringing more resources into Germany, you postpone the industrial collapse of, of late 1918, and the Germans are able to, with the von Houdier tactics and the new stormtrooper tactics, by and large, they're able to do much better on the Western Front than they were able to sort of have the opportunity to do in our timeline. Again, you know, we stopped them just before they were able to really start 
bringing in, you know, Germans from the Baltic states, Germans from the Ukraine. There was a lot of ethnic Germans in Eastern Europe that could have been thrown into the trenches if uh, the Kaiser had uh, had had another year or two to do it. And and so under this scenario, how how long does the war last and how does it end? Well, I think that the war might end with the election of 1920 throwing Woodrow Wilson out and the Americans saying, your stupid war is stupid, we're leaving, and Europe for- being basically forced into an armistice on uh, the Kaiser's uh, terms. Or possibly the Americans leave you know, and as much the same way that happens with a lot of things. And there's huge labor actions, not just in Germany, but in Britain, which had its own, you know, massive labor unrest. And France, of course, which was having mutinies all up and down its its uh, its its army by, by 1918, even in our history. And so if you have another giant Verdun-style mutiny in the French army, you have labor actions in both Germany and Britain. You have a complete collapse of um, uh, of, of European civilization, not just in Germany. And so you get uh, fascist and irredentist and um, we were screwed by the man-ist parties rising up all over the, the, the combatant powers. And so how does that uh, then uh, ripple out into the, the 20s? Well, into the 20s, you have a whole bunch of uh, inter-fascist and inter-communist and fascist wars going on on sort of a smaller scale. And then eventually, either Stalin makes a play to conquer all of Europe or someone in uh, Germany is basically able to bring their workers to heel and use the fact of their better industrial production and the fact that they're sitting there on Alsace-Lorraine and in the Ruhr, they haven't been forced out of those places, to, um, uh, to, to start conquering Europe in the name of fascism. And so if you follow those changes uh, through even further to uh, what does the early uh, 21st century look like? Well, again, since we're doing the worst version, we have our... We, maybe we don't have Hitler in charge. We have other horrible Germans, but they don't necessarily have the Holocaust. There's still, you know, tens and, and, and dozens of millions of people killed, and there's lots of little individual Holocausts of gypsies and homosexuals and, and uh, you know, uh, evangelicals or whoever. And, of course, Stalin is still massacring people by the truckload. But uh, the Germans don't drive out all their nuclear scientists. They get the bomb. And, you know, there's five or six atomic detonations in Europe. Uh, which I think is, is pretty terrible. Meanwhile, the United States has completely uh, pulled in isolationistically and is beginning to wonder why its economy is not really uh, pumping along the way that it does in our modern trade-fueled uh, system. Why, um, uh, why, why prices are so high, for example. Uh, it's not that long ago that the average American household spent 40% of its money on food, and that could that could still be true in a world where we don't have uh, global trade dropping the cost of everything. Now, the thing about the darkest timelines is that they're very dark. Yeah, and uh, so none of these time periods, either the uh, extended World War One or the balkanized uh, warfare between fascist and uh, other totalitarian states in Europe through the twenties and thirties, or uh, the post. Uh, nuclear detonation Europe of the 40s and 50s, uh, none of these seem super appealing places to uh, set stories or to uh, uh, place games. You don't want to necessarily... There's probably not a flock of people wanting to play American mm-hmm. Food Shortage 1960. <laughs> well, there, was, there, were, there were a number of Americans who wanted to play that game, but fortunately they, they were wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, if, if you have a choice between having a, a guy who wants you to have a food shortage and a guy who doesn't, go with the guy who doesn't. So yep. is there a particular uh, anywhere in this timeline from the, the initial changes that you talked about to today that you think would be a... But not entertaining, but tolerable or interesting place to set 
fiction or a sort of a different kind of post-apocalyptic game? I think that one thing that you can do with stuff like that is that a place like that becomes a really interesting place to play semi-scientific escapism. And that might be sort of low-power supers in the sense of sort of your Suicide Squad or S.H.I.E.L.D. where you're a, you're a super agency that's going around. Robert Heinlein did an awful lot with secret teams of, of smart guys who talked like Heinlein who lived in these sort of horrible um, uh, crapsack futures. And that is enough, that's, that's sort of a good sensibility because it's like, well, here in our little headquarters, we all get to dress in bright costumes and we have superpowers and everything's pretty great. And it becomes a question, what do you do? Are you trying to fix the world? Are you just trying to expand the, the sphere? Or it can just be an excuse to not really care that you're mowing down a whole bunch of guys in, um, uh, in identical jumpsuits because they're all fascists, probably. Another possibility is the sort of space escape game where you've got um, the team has made it to one of the Lagrange points or to uh, an asteroid or something, and Earth is sort of continuing to, to roil and be horrible. And the question is, do we have an obligation to go down there and use our superior space technology to help these poor bastards? Or is our job to build such an enormous presence in space that humanity isn't all uh, this sort of, of roiling, fascist, starving, communist misery? Right, because I think that's what you would need to make this appealing as a game setting, as a sort of a haven that the... Uh, player characters can uh, be from or retreat to that gives them that sort of space and then has the uh, the horrible world a place that they go to to perform uh, missions and they can either be sort of amoral uh, missions or they can be trying to rebuild the uh, the world as you suggest. Now post-apocalyptic settings in general at some point become uh, westerns with mohawks uh, unlike westerns, which are also westerns with mohawks, I guess I guess the difference is yes. the color of the mohawk <laughs> or the, right, the leather yeah. studding well, that goes well, with it. Well, there's there's like 150 years where there's no right. mohawks and then they, and just, yeah. just uh, braids and uh, right. ponytails. Because of course that's the obvious visual references you're going to. So if you use the nuclear devastated Europe of this timeline as a setting for a European post-apocalyptic western, how does that uh, play with the tropes of the western? I think, first of all, um, I've noticed, and I've seen a lot of sort of European Westerns in my day, and a lot of them are real, real fans of Sergio Leone, and not just because he's awesome, but also because his take on the Western is very much a brutal nihilist take, and I think that that, you know, I've said before on this podcast that in America, heavily armed strangers wandering around killing varmints is a Western, and is great, and in Europe, it's the Thirty Years' War, and so... The, the, I think you what you do is you take those Western codes and tropes and you turn them, you know, dark and horrible in much the same way that you do it with the revisionist Western. And uh, maybe to um, uh, to sort of signal it that there are guys in your in your little band who are Americans or who have some connection to cowboys. Uh, uh, Carl May, the German pulp writer, wrote a whole ton of of Westerns for Germans in which the point was that. Uh, German superiority could basically beat up anything, and I think that that is sort of going to be the, the tenor of a post-Holocaust Middle Europe uh, Western, a Midland, in, in which you have to sort of continuously struggle to be the big man on, on, the, uh, on the totem pole or the king of the hill, and the question becomes, what do you do with your hill once you're the king of it? Do you try and build out to another hill? Or do you just loot everything around you and, and pull out for, um, uh, for for New Zealand or somewhere that is not entirely um, uh, immiserated? Right. And so basically it is the uh, the new Dark Ages. And are right. you a force for 
you know, how do you protect your community? How do you do you try and uh, rescue the people with knowledge and save knowledge for the future? Or are you just out for uh, conquest? So you could do, you know, a uh, you could certainly do a hill folk campaign where you're the most important people uh, in this uh, devastated uh, fortress community, and you're trying to uh, rebuild civilization and uh, protect it from the neo Visigoths who uh, are starting to have weird glowing skin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and obviously you would maybe not want to uh, get too specific on on what. Uh what nationality the Neo-Visigoths are, but I'm sure there's plenty of people who want to uh, beat on the Germans. Um, you can also have sort of an Arthurian mode, because obviously that is the, the great European version of, of, the, of the Western in sense of building civilization and hope, is that if no matter how bad everything is, if one king gathers together all the good men and they go out and they kill all the ogres and they follow the Holy Grail and they're good folks, they can build at least for that king's lifetime something worth uh, remembering. And maybe that's the goal, is to sort of do a Germanic uh, version of, of Pendragon, where you are, maybe, you know, maybe you're consciously emulating the Volsungs or, or some of those contemporary sorts of Arthurian sagas, or maybe you are building your own version of, of Arthur there in Germany uh, with uh, a Holy Grail that might be a, a magic meteor that gives you superpowers, or it might be, you know, any number of, of things, or it might actually be the Holy Grail, depending on how wild you want to get with it. Yep, and you can pull out the, the Gamma World uh, tables of whatever Gamma World version you want, and uh, you can uh, have the Visigoths be porcupines for all, that, for all that matters. So anyway, I think we've turned something actually really horrible into something even horribler, and then maybe at the end into something someone might actually want to play in. So at that point, I think we should uh, uh, declare victory and evacuate our trenches. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. World Spinner. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Reward our creativity by hitting the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as Russell Spicklemeyer. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or miserable trench by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.